And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John. That's the fourth Gospel. It's radically different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and it tells us an amazing, uh, or John tells us uh, this eyewitness picture in an amazing and profound way that, that presents Jesus in very simple and childlike ways with terms and word pictures that, that anyone could have access to. Jesus is like light. He's like life. And, the, and these pictures we see here are, are, are coming at us in even childlike, simple ways, so much that John is regularly the Bible verse that children and even most of you would have memorized and retain in your own memory. But it's also full of very complex, compound, deep, powerful, and meaningful kinds of things that I believe you could spend a lifetime beginning to try to understand. And that way we say it's the Gospel of John is like, like the ocean. Like there's places in the ocean that are calm little pools where a child can wade in safely. But there are places in the ocean where if you try to fathom the depths, it will consume you and kill you. And that's how we see Jesus presented. And John wants us to know at the very end that the goal that he has for us is for us to see Jesus, to believe in, to trust in, to look to him above all other things, to renounce our loyalty to other things and place it strictly and completely and exclusively in Him and, th and therefore then have life, have joy. So chapter 1, we see an introduction to who John wants us to see Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Creator alongside God. He is co-eternal with the Father. He is eternally begotten. He is a part of bringing everything into existence that is in existence. And we saw last week, the way, the way that God introduces himself is profound. And, and Eric led us through this last chunk of the first chapter of John. And it's like, well, what would God do? What would, if God was here, if God was present with us, what would God do? And John tells us the first thing that God did when he took on flesh and, and became with us and for us and among us in Jesus is that he called people to himself. It's the first thing he did. God comes to be with us and for us, and the first thing he did is he called people to himself, and so therefore we do the same. And that's our goal, is to call people. Come and see Jesus. Come with us. And calling others to love and cherish Jesus. We saw last week, remember, it isn't like a varsity thing. It's not a graduation thing. You don't study and love Jesus for a long time, and then, hopefully, once you have the courage and knowledge and know-how, then you share that good news of Jesus with someone else. We find that the very first people who were called by Jesus, the very first thing they did was what? They invited others to follow him too. And so seeing the gospel multiply, not in us, but not only in us, but into others, isn't something we graduate to. It's actually the ABCs of following Jesus. And so now John wants to introduce us to the essence of Jesus. These, he begins in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way for the next three chapters for sure, but then all the way to chapter 10, and some scholars would even say chapter 12, he begins a whole section of signs, signs that will point to who Jesus is. And so the first sign he tells us to indicate what it is that Jesus is like, we see beginning in verse 1, and so we'll read the first 12 verses of John chapter 2 and spend our time there this morning. Beginning in verse 1, And on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. We believe this is God's word. And my prayer is that that becomes a reality for us today. John introduces us to the miraculous power of God made flesh in Jesus. This is his introductory work. As if to say, what is the essence of Jesus? What's the first miraculous, what's the first supernatural thing that Jesus did? And we see an introduction. What is the essence? What is the essential being of Jesus' supernatural work? And John says, this is the first thing he did. This is the first powerful manifestation of his, we see here, his glory, his supernatural divinity. And he shows up at a wedding and makes a bunch of wine. Shows up at a wedding and makes some fine wine. Wine like the kind of name you can't pronounce. Shows up, it, Jesus is going to introduce, what would, what would God do among us? Right? We saw this last week. The first thing, what would God do if he were here? And the first thing we see at the end of chapter 1, he would call people to himself. And even call people to himself in such a compelling way that they would, they would say, Come, he's calling all of us to himself. Come and see this Jesus. But the way that he manifests his glorious and miraculous power is he makes a bunch of wine at a party. I want to encourage you here. We see the very essence of Jesus. We're introduced to this character and nature of God made visible for us in Jesus. And the first thing he does is he attends a party and he turns the party upside down. Now, I shared with you, beginning in chapter 2, we see the public ministry of Jesus, the signs of Jesus for the next, at least the next three chapters, but all the way to chapter 10 and even chapter 12. But this is really an interesting introduction because even though this starts the, the introduction of Jesus and his public signs, he does a very semi-public kind of a miracle. Did you catch that? He did something that transformed the character of the party, but nobody even knew about it. The only people who knew what had happened were the people around Jesus closely and then the servants who obeyed Jesus. Other than that, no one even knew. They just thought this was the greatest party ever. Someone brought the greatest wine they'd ever had. 
They didn't even know how it happened. And so what you'll see is an amazing picture right here. It takes the, the purification, these jars full of water that we use for ritual purification, and he turns them into something new. And I want to be, be sure you recognize this. This is what's going to happen for the next four chapters. Chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, or excuse me, the, the end of the next three chapters to the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, there's a theme of what Jesus does that John wants us to see of taking old things, in this case religious things like purification water, and making something new. We see a wine being made, this new kingdom coming. We see the old temple being addressed in this chapter. And then there's this beautiful thing in chapter 3 of what it means to experience new life where there once was death. And then we see this contrast between even Jacob's well and the living water, the old source of water and the new source of living water. Until finally we see even the worship of God in Jerusalem in a new and profound way that is not in the old way, but is in a new way in spirit and truth. So the next few chapters, we're going to see old things transformed by Jesus into something new. And he starts here with a wedding, shows up with a wedding, and turns it upside down. Now, to buckle up for a trek, we're going to walk through a bunch of old things for the next few chapters and few weeks becoming new. And so the first thing that happens, verse 1, on the third day, note that the third day, this is like, this is his first few days of ministry, Right? He's just called a few guys, and I inter- this is really interesting. I mean, I, I want you to at least, for the best you can, is catch the sense of humor that God has here, that John wants us to, to see. This is his first few days in public ministry. He only has a few disciples. In fact, he stole those disciples from John we saw last week. Hey, you guys, stop following him. Follow me. Ragtag bunch of guys that have really only been on the job, really only known each other closely for a few days, and then they go to a wedding. The first thing I want you to see, there's a, a marriage going on. There's a union of souls happening. Now remember, the first, the first verse of the first chapter introduced us to the ways in which this new creation parallels but supersedes the old. Right? The first few words in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, John starts with that very thing and then starts to kind of say, look, what really happened and what actually was happening is God was already working out a way to draw his people back to him even before they had rebelled. And this old creation is being made new in Jesus. And John is telling us a story that has parallels from Genesis. And every time God spoke in Genesis, new life bursts forth. And same thing here. When Jesus is the express incarnate word of God, life bursts forth where there once was nothing and where there once was death. And then people start to multiply as God calls them to follow him. Catch that? And then what do we see in Genesis? The crowning achievement of God's creation ends where? A wedding. A marriage of sorts. You can go back there if you want. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the picture of God creating men and women in a way that that they reflect and image Him through all creation. And even in the way that they multiply, somehow bears God's image and testifies to a greater reality. And then the Bible tells us that after this man, Adam, woke from a deep sleep, God did what? Presented this woman to this man. As if, like, here, this. You're going to want to see this. You're gonna, it's not good that you're alone. You're going to want to see this. As if he just kind of stood back and said, like, here. 
And we see like the first wedding, right? You see the, you see the echoes of that? Don't, don't miss that. Like the, the picture of a father giving away a bride or that however we choose to celebrate that in a wedding, for example, we have a lot of freedom in how we do that. But the way we do that, did you catch why? It's an homage to the very first wedding that God says, here, look, look what I've made for you. Look, man, look what I have for you, woman. Look, woman, look what I have for you. And you won't survive, literally. You, you'll go extinct without one another. And therefore, you see this picture of God's life-giving power. Well, what do we see here? A parallel. Get it? Jesus does the same thing. We're, we've, we've seen God calls people together, start to multiply, and then what happens? There's a crowning achievement. The crowning achievement after the, after the word brings forth life and calls life out of death, there's a wedding. Very beginning of his ministry goes to a wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And then we find that we're introduced to someone there we haven't heard of so far in the Gospel of John. And the mother of Jesus was there. Mary. She was right there. It's this beautiful picture. This all started in Genesis with a wedding. God presenting Eve to Adam. And now we see this other thing that John wants us to know about. That God presents something and it happens at a wedding as well. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Don't run past that. John wants you to realize something pretty profound here. Jesus is the kind of guy, and the people he hung around with were the kinds of guys that you would actually invite to your wedding. Don't miss that. It's pretty clear he's saying, like, Jesus is the kind of guy you would want to come to your party. Now, it's important to notice this happened just right at the beginning of his ministry. Some, some people would say, like, the people you would invite to your wedding, or, or they would be important dignitaries, or it would have been customary to invite important and influential teachers, priests, rabbis to a wedding. But he isn't that yet. He's only got a couple of ragtag followers that he, that he got from John. He, has, he hasn't even been on the job publicly for a couple of days. And so there must have been something else going on with Jesus that would have other people invite him to the wedding. And I just think this kind of lends itself to a principle I think we can live by. Hey, be the kind of person that, that someone would invite to parties. You see this. You're going to see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus and his disciples always being called to, invited to, enjoy parties. So there you go. Be the kind of person that people would actually want to invite to a party. Look what Jesus did here. Be faithfully present, waiting for an opportunity to serve and then bring life to the party. But don't miss that. The next time someone invites you to come hang out, I don't know, do whatever the thing that is that you do, you will be inclined and tempted to think that you're awesome. And the reason you're there is because you're so sweet and awesome. Right? Don't miss that. If God blesses you in such a way that someone actually wants to hang out with you and invite you to their party, hoping that you won't crash it or destroy it, right? You know who that person is, right? And they want you to come. Don't miss what Jesus saw it as. This is a place where I can just simply be faithfully present. I can have a transformed presence here. I can have a higher loyalty in this group of people, and I can wait patiently, and the opportunity will present itself to serve, to give something of myself and what we see here is to bring life to the party 
But don't miss what happens next. He doesn't take over the party. Remember what I told you, the miracle that he performs, we see, doesn't become public. Not necessarily everyone knows. So the second thing I would add to this little lesson, we see that Jesus and his disciples were the kind of people that would be invited to a party. Okay, you don't have to be the life of the party, all right? Be the kind of person that would get invited to a party, right? You'll never be able to follow Jesus, look like Jesus, if you keep making everything about you. No one wants to invite you to a party when you take over all the time. So you don't have to be the life of the party. Look what he did. Jesus did something completely under the radar. It blessed everyone at the party. There was honor and joy and celebration to go around, and he took no credit for it. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Notice that that very first phrase. There's a powerful truth, I think, that we see when the wine ran out. One of the more important things that happens in this particular passage is the same thing that John wants to introduce us to at the very beginning of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the logos. We would say he's like the reason. He's the rationale. He's the meaning of life. Everything converges in him. And so John is going to go to great lengths to use very symbolic language and then make them all kind of lay all on the top of one of these symbols and metaphors on top of one another so you look right through the middle of them and see Jesus. And so he'll talk about wine, he'll talk about water, he'll talk about weddings. Like he's, he's just, He wants you to be like, Jesus, Jesus, he's the, he's the logos, he's the reason, he's the meaning. Why are we doing this, Jesus? Why, why do I drink wine? Jesus, why do I drink water? Jesus, why do I go to weddings? Jesus, what's the point of all this? Jesus, do you get this? And so he's introducing a lot of themes, and they're all going to drop right on top of one another, and you look right through the middle of them and go, oh, Jesus. So he goes to a wedding, Jesus, I say this whenever I can. Weddings are about Jesus, Ephesians 5 tells us. If you're a future mother-in-law in here or a future bridezilla, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. I know, it's like Sunday school all over again. You're nailing it. <laughs> Killing it. When the wine ran out, the wine runs out. And what I would encourage you, maybe in a dark way, to begin to consider it always runs out. It always runs out. The provision made always falls short. And look what's about to happen. It, we, we come to find out the person organizing this whole feast was a bridegroom, the groom himself. And so it wasn't necessarily like, we don't, we find, you know, note to self, grooms, uh, the, the master of the feast went straight to the groom who was running the show, not the mother of the bride. Just note to self, just taking notes, future, future husbands, future grooms out there. It's a good guy being servant here, putting on a party for all the people, right? Something amazing happens, and the groom's about to be shamed. We even find in other, uh, other extra-biblical sources point to where the, the family of the bride, had they come to this party, and then the wine had run out, the provisions for the party that more than likely would have lasted about a week, the greatness of a wedding at this particular time would have been how much feasting we can do over a period of time, and, and it would have lasted an entire week if they had the provisions for it. But somewhere in the party, we don't know where in the party, maybe the first day, maybe close to the last day, the wine runs out. And, and we find in other sources that the, the family members of the bride could sue, could make a financial claim against the groom or whoever threw the party for not making provision for the party they were invited to. That's scary. 
the wine always runs out. And the groom was about to be shamed. Just imagine that for a moment. Just imagine. We, we have like all sorts of, remember, because, because we don't really believe, like when I tell you weddings are about Jesus, you don't really believe me, right? You believe it's about Cinderella or fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. And so therefore, we don't, so we don't really believe that. We tend, to, we tend to approach weddings in a pretty, you know, pretty painful and powerful way. And people show up at weddings with probably the, one of the most critical spirits I've ever, like, of any event I've ever been a part of. Like a stress, everyone's freaking out. Like, we're supposed to be happy? Why is no one happy? Why is everyone freaking out? Right? Maybe it's just you. I get to see a lot of weddings up close and personal. It's just what happens. And people bring a highly critical spirit. And it's possible, since it, we even know, they would have had legal grounds to, like, sue. Next time you go to a wedding and it's, it's like, oh, this cake is bad. Imagine if you could sue them for that, right? <laughs> so that this wedding, this is about to be a massive embarrassment for the groom. I went to a wedding reception once. Uh, I did the wedding at the reception and they had smoked some brisket. I don't know if you know about anything about brisket. Um, I love barbecue, and barbecue is the history of poor people food. Poor people food takes a long time to cook, right? Rich people food, you throw it on the grill, and it's ready to eat, right? Poor people food takes like a day to cook, and it becomes amazing. Well, the brisket at this particular reception had not had time to cook, and it was like eating boot leather. And I had, I just happened to be like, just at a you know, profound, profound little spot. I was sitting there at a table, and it just so happened that uh, I was next to Captain Critical People. Like, if, if you could sue someone for a wedding not going like you want it to, I was at the table of all those people that would have done that. Uh, some, you know, I, I won't describe them. I wouldn't even give you a demographic to demonize in this particular story. But they were livid. Suffice to say, the fact that someone would have served meat that was not tender and edible, boy, it infuriated them. It made, and I heard some of the most awful things I'd ever heard anyone say about, I don't know, a family. I mean, they saw right through, you could, you could tell like as soon as they saw like, the, uh, like this tough brisket, they were just like, well, these people are terrible people. This is going to be a failed marriage. Like, I mean, it was like, they were angry. It was like, like, see, it's a risk. And I was like, wow. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding like that. I don't know if you've ever hung around any people where that's happened. But it's pretty powerful because we see something happen here. That's where the groom is headed. The groom is headed for an embarrassment. The groom is headed for a situation where he's about to be shamed. And instead, Jesus intervenes. The wine always runs out. The thing you're looking to for pleasure, the provision you've made, to be happy, and in this case, to make everyone else happy, will fail. The thing you're hoping in for joy, pleasure, distraction, it will give out. And we see something power powerful here. Jesus does something. Jesus intervenes. Verse 4, we get this really strange diatribe, this little really interesting kind of a, a dialogue, excuse me, between Jesus and his mother. Beginning of verse 4, and Jesus said to her, or excuse me, verse 3, the wine runs out. The mother of Jesus says to him, hey, they have no wine, right? This is a good, Jesus' mom, hey, something's going on here. Something's not right. And so as a result, he's kind of freaking out, or, or she's, she's kind of freaking out, or maybe she's just at least concerned. 
and she wants something to be done, and then there's this really, really awkward kind of exchange. Did you catch that? They have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, note to self, Mother's Day right around the corner, you are not the incarnate son of God. Okay? Jesus is making a point here. Now, don't, don't, don't be misled. This word, this word could be translated madam, ma'am, right? It's a, it's a term of respect, but you're right. It is weird because he doesn't call her mom, okay? And so just getting ready for Mother's Day. Don't try this, okay? It's not, don't do that. Honor your father and your mother. He's honoring her in a different way. This word he uses that gets translated here, woman, could be madam. It's the same word, don't, don't be misled, that he uses from the cross. When he looks at him and says, madam or woman, now, now be, be taken care of by someone else. And he gives away his mom to what we assume was probably the beloved disciple John and some of the other people to care for her. So it's not a, it's not a disrespectful thing, but it is a little bit confrontational. And it's meant to be that. He didn't say mom, mother. There's a Greek word for that. That's not here. Miss? What's that got to do with me? This is a hard thing to translate. It says, what does this have to do with me? Literally, madam or woman, what is this to you, to me? It's an idiomatic phrase. It's, again, it's, just, it's hard to translate, but I think you get the tone here. He's like, what's this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I want you to see what's going on here. There's a lot of layers to this that if you don't catch this, you'll be a little bit misled. One of the first things you see going on, John always, always points, uh, points us towards the ways in which, and we saw this last week, the ways in which people tend to relate to Jesus in very natural, carnal, and insufficient ways. Everyone who comes to Jesus doesn't quite recognize the magnitude of the glory of Jesus being, or God being present with us in Jesus. Every single one comes to Jesus and they just don't quite get it. And they come to Jesus in carnal ways. They operate in human, natural levels. Even his mother. Even his mother. And so John tells us this so that we'll realize no one gets a free pass to Jesus. And this is important for us because our brothers and sisters who are Catholic and those who are non-Catholic disagree on this particular point. This is, this is a huge this is a particular point of contention for us. Do we love Mary? Do we think she's awesome? Yes, she apparently knew Jesus better than anyone else. But notice what John is saying. She does not have a direct access to, to Jesus. Even Jesus is like, whoa, slow down. I mean, get mom, woman. And as if to say, even Jesus' own mother doesn't get like a straight route to God. They all must worship and submit to Jesus. Don't miss it. That's, he's making a pretty profound point. And that's why he put language in there that's startling, especially for you again, preparing for Mother's Day, right? And there's this little bit of a, maybe there's not any tension, but there's at least a, a subtle disagreement. He's saying, look, this has nothing to do with me. My hour has not yet come. As if to say, there's something I came to do. And for the rest of the Gospel of John, he'll refer to the hour with respect to his death, with respect to his being glorified, and with respect to his resurrection, saying that there's a thing I came to do, and this is what I'm after. And even we see a picture here, John telling us, even Mary didn't quite fully get it. And Jesus had to say, no, this is not quite time. And you got to imagine, this is pretty profound, right? 
Like, I don't know, I don't know. There's got to be nothing worse than having your mom show up with all your buddies around you and then start telling you what to do. Maybe that's just me. You're there with your guys. Mom comes up. Hey, I mean, just as moms do. I say, yeah, there's no reason for that. There's no reason for an impersonation right now. But communicates in a very powerful way without saying Hey, Jesus, I need you to get something, as moms can do. She just says, they have no wine. <laughs> and like a good son, he says, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> and John wants you to see there's something bigger Jesus is doing. And even Mary didn't get it. Get this. This is how he started his ministry. What he does next is how he starts his public ministry. Imagine if we started that way, right? Imagine if we, if we like, I mean, you do the math there. Don't do it out loud. But there's 20 to 30 gallons in each one of these vats, right? Six of them. So there's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Imagine if we started that way. Planted, let's plant a church. What should we do first? What we need is 180 gallons of wine. That's what we need. <laughs> he says, my hour's not yet come. And then he just does something. There's something profound here. And I want you to see the next half of this when he says, like, madam, this callousness towards the mother isn't like disrespect, but it's as if John wants us to know, look, not everyone really understood who Jesus was and what he had done or what he had done and what he was about to do. Even Mary. He's not being disrespectful. But look at Look at the, the solution here that Mary comes to. And this is why we love Mary so much. Instead of arguing with Jesus, she just looks at the servants and says, you do what he says. Man, you've got to love Mary's faith here, right? Don't you love Mary's faith? She knew enough to say, you're going to want to listen to what he says next. I don't know what he's going to do, but you follow him. Same thing. Remember, we already saw this last chapter. Go, come and, you know, go get somebody, come and see, bring them to Jesus. And what does even Mary do? You love the faith and love she has for Jesus. You're going to want to obey this man. What great faith of Mary. And this is why we agree. We ought to venerate and honor Mary. Now, we shouldn't elevate her to the point of like a co-redemptress with Jesus, as if like God couldn't finish the task without Mary. But we should look at someone like Mary and say, and we're often, we're just tempted to say like, man, if I knew Jesus better, if I really understood Jesus better, that would, then I would, I, would, I would get it. And maybe there's, you know, windows that would be open to me. And look at the person who knew Jesus better than anyone else and look at her great faith in Jesus. And look how she pointed others to Jesus. You're going to want to listen to him. You're going to want to do what he says. And then something amazing happens. Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, and something profound happens. He says, fill the jars with water. So they topped all of them off, even some of them probably empty, filled them to the brim, and then he said, now go serve some of that water to the master. Now remember what Mary told them, because this is a point where, <laughs> this is a point where they probably would have had second thoughts. You want me to serve water to the master? You want me to take some water to the master? I mean, we know we're out of wine. You want me to take water to the master? But they remember, look, she said, do what this guy says. Let's do it. So they took it, and the master of the feast tasted it. It's amazing. 
look, everybody serves the good wine first. And after a while, when literally they've drunk freely, then they drink out poor wine. People's taste buds lose their effectiveness after a certain number of drinks. I won't elaborate on this too much, but about hour four or five into, say, like something like a frat party, no one's a connoisseur anymore. And they've long abandoned quality of drink and traded it for quantity. But what happens here? There's good, look, you, they've drunk freely, but look what you've done in the verse 10. You kept the good wine until now. Now look at what happens. This, the first of his signs, brought glory, manifested glory of Jesus. And who got credit? The first things I want you to see here, the groom receives a compliment due Jesus. And so do we. Notice the party got turned upside down and there was joy and celebration around. The groom doesn't even know where or how this happened. And Jesus is happily passing out abundant, multiplying blessings, or just, just passing out the drinks and making amazing things happen and sitting back and enjoying while the groom gets to, and it just gets to get all the credit. I want you to see little pictures and principles here that John tells us to take note of. That's just what Jesus does. You see the substitutionary nature of Jesus' work. There's an unfairness here. Right? We would even say there's, like a, there's a non-justice that takes place here, isn't there? The groom does not deserve credit for this wonderful wine. Quite the opposite. He and his friends, or I don't know, who is wedding planner, they're the ones who failed. They're the ones who deserve the shame. They're the ones who deserve ridicule for not running this party and this celebration like they ought to. They deserve a lawsuit. And what happens? A non-justice takes place because of Jesus. And instead of the shame, they get, he gets what? He gets the glory that's due to Jesus. Oh, friend, hear the good news. So do we. And where we deserve shame for our inability to, to do and to be what is right, we find that Jesus does it in our place. And as a way that only Jesus and his humility can, he sits back and goes, yeah, I did this for you. Enjoy. Share in my glory. Share and enjoy what really rightly I have paid for. And it ought to startle you, right? It, it, it might even ought to offend you. You ought to look at the groom and be like, how could he not, like, he should have said something. This is where uh, he should have said, I didn't do this. This is someone else. All glory be to someone else. And yet, what do we do? We experience the benefit of that same non-justice, don't we? On a weekly basis, we get together and we so share, share in the glory of Jesus. And one of you will say, but we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And I'll say, I know. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that bizarre? The, the groom receives the compliment that Jesus deserved. And so do we. Don't miss this. John wants you to know that the benefit of Jesus' miraculous presence and work is given to someone else. And Jesus is happy to share the benefit of his miraculous power and his transformed presence. Because something happens when Jesus shows up, he transforms the wedding. And something we think, and John wants to make the case for for the rest of this gospel, when Jesus shows up, he transforms everything. The thing he does at this wedding is just what he does. 
Side note here. What would Jesus say or do if he showed up at your wedding? Now, you invite prominent people to weddings. He was only three days on the job. And evidently, Jesus was just someone people liked to have around. And now we see why. So I want to take a step here and just like stop before we kind of look at the principles. There's more here. There's, I want to take a side note here and at this place where Jesus turns water into wine, I got I to do something. I got to step to the side and talk to you for a few minutes about alcohol, okay? And the reason is this, something you've heard me say on a regular basis. Remember, like, John paints a picture seeing Jesus, going after Jesus, and starting to look like Jesus by following him. And I would say that discipling, calling people to follow Jesus and look like Jesus, discipleship in the future will involve more and more teaching people just basic skills, like, hey, if you love and serve Jesus, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the love that's overflowing in you will look a certain way. Like, oh, you broke up with her on a text message? Uh, don't do that. Oh, yeah? Oh, you th- look in your text messages. See what you're hiding. Get it? And fo- calling people to look more and more like Jesus will involve more and more teaching people just basic life skills. Hey, don't do that. Hey, have you ever noticed that this is how, you know, people experience you? You're kind of this. You're kind of that. And inviting people into that is part of following Jesus because we want to look more and more like Jesus. So I want to stop here. This is where, depending on where you're from or your own background here, and we talked about this in the, in, as we walked through the book of Jonah, when we find things like alcohol or any other kind of you know, things in the scripture or things in life that really are polarizing, we tend to lean on one side or the other. We take the thing and we either deify it or we demonize it. We look at the thing and we say, it's God, it's everything that ought to happen. And we deify it or we say, it's evil, you should run from it and we demonize it. And that's troubling because that distracts from what's really true, right? When we talk about, you know what's evil in the world? Not stuff. What's evil in the world is people like you. And in the depths of your own soul, you need God's mercy. God doesn't need to come back and save alcohol. God needs to save and redeem us. And so don't, don't miss it. When we deify or demonize a thing, we're preaching an anti-gospel. We're saying that that thing is the problem, and if you could fix that thing, everything would be okay. And that distracts us from the, the problem in the world is us. And Jesus didn't come to fix stuff. He came to give new life to dead people. Okay? So be careful. When, you, when I say something like alcohol, you fill in the blank. Like food, sex, you name it. You'll either deify it. It's the most important thing. Since the sexual revolution, that's where we are over here. Sex is everything. Sexual expression is your identity. Your orientation is who you are. You get that? <laughs> Time out. Time out, doesn't it? Slow down. You don't de- or you demonize it. Maybe you're from a background where like, even I said that word, and like, you cringe. Like, he's talking. He's talking. Did you hear what he's... Right? Like, and and you, you're going to be on one side or the other. You're going to lean towards either demonizing it or excuse me, deifying it, like this is the most important thing on earth and this should be everywhere, or you'll demonize it and you'll be like, well, it's, it's evil, you, shouldn't, you should stay away from that thing. And I want you to get, don't, don't miss this. God is a good creator. The things he gives are for his glory and our joy. And how we choose to use those things, either for our own glory or for his, determines its goodness or its badness. The goodness of a thing is not in itself inherently. It's in the means by which and the extent to which it gives God glory. And so there are ways that you can take things in the world like alcohol, sex, you name it, music, 
vocation, and you can glorify yourself or you can glorify Jesus. And the determining factor isn't a thing, it's your heart, your motives, your intentions. So just a side note here. He makes wine. And I just know a couple of you people, like you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, like you're gonna fall in one of two categories, right? If you put the fun and fundamentalism, right, you know, you're, you're over here. You're like, alcohol is the devil. It is evil. And you're struggling now. You're gonna have to find out some, you're gonna have to make up an interpretation where Jesus actually made grape juice instead of wine. And I'm, okay, let's learn some Greek. Good luck with that. And, uh, and, and you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to come up with a justification so that you can demonize it. Otherwise, Jesus is bad. Because if Jesus made like 120 to 180 gallons of it, okay, and good stuff, like, like good stuff, the good stuff, like what? And if you're over here and you demonize alcohol and you think that's the problem, then right now you're struggling because they're like, well, is Jesus bad? Did Jesus do a bad thing? Or you're over here and you're like, yes! Over here you're like, alcohol should not be involved in anything. And over here you're like, everything should have alcohol. Why, why are we not drinking right now? And I want to encourage you, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. Things like alcohol, things like money, are neutral. But they expose the heart, don't they? So I just want you to see, like, if you're on one side and you're like, alcohol is evil, I just, just so you know, like, maybe that's good. Maybe you should abstain. Maybe you, there were, there were the, the Nazarites took a vow. John the Baptist lived in the tradition of the Nazarites not to drink alcohol. And so for you, uh, the New Testament tells us later, if that's, a, like, if that's a stain on your conscience, you're right. You shouldn't drink. You shouldn't, if it is sin to you, you should stay away from it. And you should let the Holy Spirit's work in your conscience do something powerful. The way I would illustrate this to you is I've shared this with many people. A mentor of mine, uh, a very close pastor friend of mine, shared with me a, a story, um, and I, I got to encounter this, and he, he showed up at a party where several people in our church, in his church, were, uh, were there, and, and he showed up, and there was a, a, a man they had appointed as a deacon who was there drinking a beer next to a guy, and as soon as the pastor showed up, some of you know what he did, he was like, and he hit it. And my pastor friend walked straight over to that guy, and said, you don't need to be drinking. Now, the man became indignant, right? He all of a sudden became a biblical scholar at that moment. Well, the Bible doesn't say I could, I could drink. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't have a clean conscience about this. And that's why you hid it. And so I'm, this is an area where you can go one side or the other. But for you, your conscience may already be dictating the, what you should do with alcohol. For some of you... He says, stay away. Stay away. Maybe for the, other, the rest of you. We also believe in what's called the noetic effects of the fall. The noetic effects. That is the effects of sin, not only that, that it brings death and destruction, but it brings decay even to the conscience and the mind. That even our very consciences are seared by sin. And so on one hand, over here, while the Holy Spirit is guiding your conscience, it can guide you into what happens next, where, where drunkenness is categorically prohibited throughout the entirety of the Scripture. And so if over here, you're like, oh, cool, my conscience is clear about getting wasted, I want to say, stop. Stop. You're living in a fallen, broken way, and you're living under the lordship of this thing. It masters you. So just... This is a conversation that ought to be had on a regular basis. Some of you, maybe you can enjoy God and 
uh, and, and his pleasure and the gifts he gives you by enjoying alcohol. And the way I would just ask you this way is like, why do you drink? If you drink, why do you drink? If you don't drink, why don't you drink? Your motives are what is in question. That alcohol, that bottle, it will not stand trial before the fiery judgment. You will. And so what are your motives, right? So if you, like, how do you tend to enjoy alcohol if you do, right? What's your heart and disposition towards it? Do you come in a room and, and like, is, is, put it this way, what's the occasion for alcohol? And if alcohol is the occasion, that's a problem, right? Like, I just, I could be wrong. Uh, I've never, I have yet to hear someone, like, I was playing a drinking game. Just think about that. The game's purpose is to drink. I've never heard someone be like, man, I was playing this drinking game, and then in this moment I was glorifying Christ and repenting of sin and sinfulness and experiencing His transforming grace over me. Have not heard that. That's not a dare, by the way. You're over here. Stop it. Okay? I've just never heard it. And we also need to submit to our authorities. Bible tells us that like if there are laws of the land, so if you're under 21, the way we submit to the law, that doesn't mean that laws are our God, but if we're going to submit to our laws, then this, this is something for us. Again, I've never heard someone be like, I got a ticket for underage drinking, and someone goes, glory to Christ, I want to repent of sin. Like I just have never seen that happen. And so as a result, we want to recognize that our conscience may be seared. And if our intentions with alcohol are for alcohol, if alcohol becomes the center of the party, you missed it. Completely missed it. There was a party, and the joy was for the people being married. That's what happened. But if you're on the other hand, I would ask you the same intentions. Do you abstain from alcohol just so you can look down on people who don't? Is that a great point of pride for you that you don't drink? Okay, then, again, do you get it? Like, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a heart turned away from God's good and gracious gift. There are lots of gifts out there that I don't get to enjoy, but it's not on me to, like, judge you for enjoying them. Now, it is on me to judge you if you enjoy them in a way that's either pharisaical, because you take pride in your choice on this, or in a way that's licentious. You just love it. All right, so back. We're going to have lots of conversations about this kind of stuff, all right? Because I think following Jesus and look like, looking like Jesus will mean we ask people to think about how they do actual things. But notice what happens here. Jesus did something profound. He took the old system and washing with water and he made a new one in his body and his blood. Remember what I told you? John makes all these themes converge on this, scene, on this exact moment. He makes all of them water, right? We're going to see this for the rest of the Gospel of John. All of it. We're going to see water, wine, blood, light, life. They're all going to converge. And what happens? Jesus does something. And, and the thing that people were putting their hope in the pleasures they were depending on failed, and Jesus comes in and, and he takes this old system. These were jugs of water for the rites of purification. Don't miss that. This is interesting. This is also why Jesus really made the Pharisees mad, <laughs> right? And so, like the Pharisees, the Pharisees used the, the priests would have used those jugs of water throughout the entirety of the of the ceremony of the wedding to wash hands, to consecrate things, to keep things clean. And Jesus does something. He replaces it with wine. We find later this wine is a one-to-one -one correlation with his blood. Look at what we see here. 
when you kind of converge all these thoughts into one, as John wants us to do, you find out something amazing. Jesus does something. He throws a party by means of a new way of being clean, his blood. Now look at this. This is good news for a few different people. I'll walk you through them. One of the first groups of people this is good news for is those who are looking for pleasure. Right? For the people who really wanted to drink a bunch of wine, and they're really hoping on something, really wanting to give them pleasure. This is really good news. Notice what Jesus does. The wine runs out, and he replaces it with something better. And for those of you who are looking for pleasure, distraction, you can't go 30 minutes without looking at your phone because you hate what's actually happening in reality. You're looking for any distraction, any pleasure, any sort of quick and easy gratification. Friend, Jesus doesn't hate your desire for pleasure. He just is willing to let you not be pleased in that thing so that he can replace it with something better. This is also good news. This story is good news for people looking for pleasure. Jesus gives us a better thing, but also it's good news for those whose pleasure has run out. I know for many of you in this room, you are walking through loss or tragedy. Please hear me. Jeremiah 31 says it this way. The young women will rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. For God says this, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. This is good news. This story is really good news for those of you whose wine has run out. Notice what Jesus does here. He brings joy where there once was sorrow. And for those of you who know exactly what this is like, when I say the wine has run out, you know exactly what I mean. This is good news. Sean wants you to know about Jesus who brings joy where there once was loss and sorrow. Where there once was failure and pain and opportunity for offense, Jesus replaces it with joy. This is also good news for those who think following Jesus is boring. All right? Jesus crashes a party and makes it awesome. So, like, if, if I say Jesus makes a party awesome and it's happy and everyone loves it and he brings a bunch of wine, like, boxes and boxes of wine, get it? The units of measure start changing when you use this much wine, Okay? And it's fine wine. It's amazing. And if that messes up your sensibilities, I want to encourage you, don't, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You don't know the one who brings joy where there was sorrow. You don't know the one who shows up at the party and makes everything amazing. And if you're confused by Jesus crashing a party in this way, you don't know what Jesus is about. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. And if that shocks you, well, I want to introduce you to the actual Jesus. I mean, I know some of you like, being a Christian, it's lame. Following Jesus is lame. I come to a worship service. I got to follow these rules and do these things. I'm like, you don't know Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. This is also good news for those who want to be made right with God. Can you hear? Remember, Jesus makes the priests angry, right? Can you hear the priests who set aside the big jugs of water for, for, for purification? Can you hear them as they come up to their big jugs of water and find gallons and gallons of wine? 
And can you hear the question that's echoing in their mind? And maybe if they had the audacity to put it to words, they would have said it something like this. All the water's been turned to wine. How will a person now be made clean? Get it? How are we going to make people right with God? (laughs) Do you get it? And do you see the profound and palpable answer that Jesus has given to them with his miracle? They'll go, how can we clean people now that all the water's been turned to wine? And Jesus is like, that's a great question, isn't it? Is it possible that there's something new going on here? Is it possible that there's a new way of relating to God? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. The way that these people would have been drinking and experiencing this is a picture we look to the way Jesus drinks judgment. Spurgeon says it this way, let the whole of the punishment of his pe- excuse me, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup, and no mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. And we, when he, that is Jesus, put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he nigh well spurned it, that he almost rejected it. And he prayed, let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. Don't miss it. The, the, the priest would have come up and said, how will a man be made clean now that the purification, the means of purification has gone away? And Jesus is saying, I've got this. I can do this for you. Look all the way back. Connect the dots to Genesis. Do you remember the first creation? that John wants to explain to us in the first creation, in the the first Genesis, there was life and then there was a wedding. And the first thing that destroyed that marriage was the enemy came in and said, take and eat and drink and inherit death. And in this new Genesis, this new creation, a new man comes, Jesus, and he says, take, eat and drink and inherit eternal life. Don't miss this. How will a person be made right? Jesus. That's how. And to look to him and to experience the good news that he replaces what might have been shame with honor. What might have been misery and and sorrow with joy and glory is to begin to see Jesus for who he really is. The Lord of the party, the Lord of the feast. You know how the story ends, right? Revelation 20 and 21 tells us that at the end of this whole thing that is called life, all of existence culminates in an entire point. And you remember what it's called? The wedding feast of the Lamb. And the master of that party says, blessed for those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you for not being up there and out there, but being with us and for us in Christ. We don't have to wonder what you're like. We can simply look at Jesus and know. But we confess there are things, as John is introducing us to Jesus, that that push against us. They they press against our, our sensitivities and our inclinations. So if there's some in this room, 
even now they come with skepticism and doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. God, thank you for bringing them here. I thank you for John who invites them and welcomes this, this, th- th- those who are far off that they might be drawn near and consider who you are. They might see you for who you are and then experience life in your name. So would you now begin to draw our eyes to you, the means by which we have joy? Maybe there's others in this room, the wine has run out, and the things we've been searching for to give us pleasure and meaning, they're failing, they're not working. And all that's left is sorrow. Would you begin to breathe life into them, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy that Jesus has come And where there once was brokenness, he has brought wholeness. Where there once was sorrow, he brings joy. Would you even now begin to give them a dose of that joy? As Jesus says the same thing to the people at this party, I've got this. You can trust me. I'll take care of you. I'll fix this. Maybe for those of us, we know this and our eyes have been opened to this, but the truth is that we've just lost joy. We we, we walk around like zombies and mummies and somber and lifeless ways, would you even now begin to remind us, you're the Lord of the feast. And the feasts and the celebrations we experience now are meant to be simply previews of the great feast, the great wedding of the Lamb. Would you even now begin to give us joy for those of us who are weary, give us strength for those of us who are beaten down, experiencing sorrow. Would you begin to breathe joy and hope into their lives through this? May we look to you and experience this. May we see your blood poured out for us as an ultimate and permanent and perfect sacrifice that we would never experience thirst again. In Jesus' name, amen.